0: Welcome to the InnovaBus podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing, so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honoured that you're here with me. If you haven't yet joined our wonderful Flywheel Nation community, go to flywheelnation.com and join in the podcast conversations. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this Innovabus podcast.
1: So, she was looking at capacity, cycles, price, and quantity. I realized that she was doing this four dimensional problem in her head. And I realized that maybe everybody does that all the time. So, I raced home and got myself an engineering package and figured out how to make a four dimensional plotting system. And I started pulling data in and I figured out that everybody in every market outside of these base commodities like pure gold, pure silver, pure platinum is using the law of value demand. And it's only got four clauses. Clause one says that. Product features drive value, value pushes price, price limits quantity sold, and quantity sold is a feature. The demand and the value are both intrinsically linked to each other. So there's a quantity-price relationship on a demand plane on one side, and there's a feature relationship where you take two primary features and then we can modulate it by other features. So value and demand are always linked across this common axis, which in economics is price. That's the theory in a nutshell.
0: Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from AnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast from Santa Clarita, California in the USA, near Los Angeles, he tells me, Doug Howarth, who's the founder and CEO of Hypernomics. Doug discovered the theory of Hypernomics and he holds its first patent. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Doug. It's a real privilege to have you here as my
1: guest. Juergen, thank you so much for having me. I know we've had some very esteemed guests and I feel lucky to be part of the crowd that you've had here. So thank you.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm lucky to have you on the show because I know you've got some really interesting insights into looking at economics from a completely <clears throat> different perspective and taking the the whole idea of supply-demand equation. And, and I'm... Sort of showing myself up as a non-economist here, but taking this whole idea <laughs> no, no, of su- no, su- supply-demand beyond that dimension and and building this idea of hypernomics. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that some more today and learning more about that. Now, before we talk all things hypernomics and economics, Doug, what's the impact you're making in
1: the world today? Well, I'm uh, I've been making papers on the topic of hypernomics for a little over a decade now. And I've put together a a book that comes out in January entitled, Hypernomics, Using Hidden Dimensions to Solve Unseen Problems. That comes out January 29th through Wiley. And our company supports a variety of firms started in aerospace, mainly. And and we came out of aerospace, so we have worked for Virgin Galactic, Lockheed Martin, and NASA. But we've also worked for the restaurant down the street and, and t- told them how to improve their operations. And it's my hope that between the book and our website and the, the talks that we have with people, that we can try to improve the world's economy.
0: Mm. So clearly, because you talked there about um, the aircraft industry, space travel, and then the local local restaurant. so clearly this mm-hmm. principle of hypernomics is applicable right across the board in in all kinds of situations
1: yeah we've we've discovered that you know the law of supply and demand about which you spoke that that actually does have some applicability it wasn't drawn from nothing basically Hmm. if you look at in australia for example you've got a lot of iron ore mines and if you look at iron ore mines and you take the cost of each mine that you'll see there's a a trend going up in cost from iron ore mines, mostly in Australia, then a few in Brazil and a few in China. And they kind of form a what the classic economists would say is a classic upward sloping, they call it supply curve. And there might be one price in that market for the raw iron ore based on what the demand is. And so as the demand intersects the, the, the supply, there's one price that's determined. And that works good for this single feature Products so iron ore, gold, mm. you know, pure gold, pure silver, pure platinum. It works good for that. But things outside of that, you know, use what we call the law of value and demand. And I, I mm. believe I told you how I discovered that with my wife in the washing machine. Would you like me to that? Recomp- you did, that yeah. Or... But uh, tell us about that,
0: yeah, because uh, that yeah, was yeah. So like...
1: I, <clears throat> I didn't know about what 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 this this phenomenon was until I. Paid very close very close attention to my wife one time when we went out to buy a washing machine. So we went into one of our local big box retailers and we'd been traipsing around the town for a while and been listening to her talk about what she wanted. And finally we went up to this one machine and she said, You know, the washing machine that we have at home has got a small drum. She says, I want more capacity in our next machine. And I thought, capacity? On a horizontal axis in price. Hmm. I said, that's a two-dimensional problem. And she said, uh, also, we've only got one delicate cycle at home. I want to have more delicate cycles and just more cycles in general. And I thought, cycles versus price. Now she's up to three dimensions. And, and I saw we we saw this one machine, I liked it, she liked it. And we saw the next machine up the line, same brand, same style, but it was had more cycles, more capacity, and it would cross more. I said, what about this one? And she says, that's too expensive. We can't afford it. And then I realized that we were part of a quantity solution that the whole planet was making. So people were going to buy a certain number of the, the ones that we end up buying, which is the one that was below, and fewer of the ones that I was just looking at, which was more expensive, and still more of the ones that were cheaper than that, forming this, this supply, or I should say demand curve which had, which related to quantity and price. So she was looking at capacity cycles, price, and quantity. I realized that she was doing this four dimensional problem in her head. Hmm. And then I realized that, well, maybe, maybe everybody does that all the time. And so I raced home and looked for a way to plot that, which you can't do in Excel or PowerPoint. So I went out and got myself a engineering package and figured out how to make a four dimensional, plotting system. And I started pulling data in and I figured out that everybody in every market outside of these base commodities like pure gold, pure, pure silver, pure platinum, everybody in every market outside of that is using the law of value demand. And it's only got just a few words to it. It's got four clauses. So clause one says that product features drive value, value pushes price. Price limits quantity sold, and quantity sold is a feature. And so the whole thing, people say, Doug, it's it's circular. I go, well, it's always been circular. Hmm. It's, it's kind of like, back to your training as a chemist, it's kind of like a balanced equation. The demand and the value are, are both in, intrinsically linked to each other. So there's a quantity-price relationship on a demand plane on one side. And then there's a feature relationship where you take two take two primary features, and then we can modulate it by other features, two features, and then the price on the other side, and those those points are linked at all times. So value and demand are always linked across this this common axis, which in economics is price. So that that's the uh, the theory in a nutshell.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, and that's how you came up with this idea of hyponomics. What what I'm yes. curious
1: about is,
0: I mean, that, that example of the washing machine is a really good one. And there's a couple of um, features that your wife clearly felt were important to her and that that you said, okay, they, they form kind of the third and fourth dimension. Uh, mm-hmm. How does it work though if, because somebody else might come along and say, "Well, well, I don't care how many cycles it's got, and I don't care uh, about the capacity as long as it's a minimum capacity." I'm what I'm uh, really interested in is, let's say, energy efficiency, and let's say, um, uh, what else is a feature of a washing machine? But um, well, it has to has to be a, a quality brand uh, with oh, a with well. A we can we can so. measure.
1: Typically, that's a very good question, Jorgen. What we usually do is we we will take when we're we're figuring out a market, we'll take a whole bunch of independent variables. So, for example, we looked at the helicopter market, and we took probably fifty independent variables that could have been impactful. And it turns out, back to your point, that some some people might want the thing to be less noisy, and some people might want the thing to be more powerful, and some people want, might might want more range. And so we take different combinations of these variables and we test it through a model, which we've patented. And then we figure out how the general market is responding to that. And we look at it in various different ways so that we can characterize the market depending on what anybody's taste is based on those features. And mm-hmm. so in some cases, uh, for example, when we do stock analysis, uh, we might have six, seven, or eight independent variables that explain the, the value of a stock to us. In the helicopter market, we've seen four, five, and six variables explain the value of a helicopter to us, all of which are not, as they say in the, in the, in the industry, cross-correlated with one another, which is to say that one feature isn't explaining the other feature. They're, they're, they're not cross linked. So yeah. what we're trying to do is to figure out how we can best describe what's going on for the masses at the same time. So there's people that, you know, somebody might really value energy efficiency back to your point. But if the, the rest of the crowd is saying that, well, capacity and cycles and, uh, means more to us than energy efficiency, you might find energy efficiency as being a modulator of that, but it's maybe a, a third order effect yeah. or a fourth hmm. order effect. And yeah, so we, we try to figure out hmm. the effectors of, of the value as we just push them into the model and see what's what spills out back in. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I I'm curious cause you touched on something else there that um, I wondered about. And you mentioned this in our pre-call is, is predicting the value of stocks and I guess um, future value and so on. And there's a lot of analysis on that you can run on, on a stock um, mm-hmm. to, predict future value. And there's lots of discussion around that. People have various opinions and so on. Um, how does mm-hmm. how does your model, hyponomics, how does that differ from some of those traditional things? And, and bearing in mind that, I guess, my opinion as a non-economist, <laughs> my opinion is that it's a little bit like, yeah, there's statistics and statistics and Lies, or whatever the quote is, but uh, so and and also <laughs> yeah, some of some wide, of those right. nu- some of those numbers are made up. So, sure. taking that stock example, and I guess uh, in a bigger picture, how does the hypernomics model differ from the traditional economics models for these things?
1: Well, as it applies to stocks, um, mo- many of your listeners would be familiar with uh, Berkshire Hathaway or or, or its owner uh, mm. Warren Buffett and his sidekick Charlie Munger. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are great value investors and and basically the key as i said in the law of value demand is the features determine value and so we adhere to that notion that basically we're there to discover the value as the masses see it and so what we look for in the stocks particularly is we look for, for the general opinion of the, the the market relative to value, say of the return on assets, return on equity, dividends, book value payouts, like any any kind of metric like that, and we we take several cuts at the at the stocks and we push these variables in for the the in this case the S and P five hundred, and then we see which stocks are undervalued from the standpoint that everybody's agreeing what the value is, except this group of stocks that we're looking at are are undervalued for whatever other reason. And um, it turns out that we've been doing this technique now for 44 months. And uh, as of last, as of the October 25th, we were doing two times as well as the S&P 500 over 44 plus months using only S&P 500 stocks. And so we did some statistical analysis to say, well, what's the chance of that happening? What's the likelihood of that happening due to chance? And it's very much less than one in a trillion. In fact, there's hmm. 200 zeros in front of this that basically describe its chance of being you know, just uh, happenstance. And so we, we feel pretty comfortable with the idea that People are collectively agreeing on what value is, and when there's a discrepancy between what people are willing to pay and what they're paying, then there's there's some opportunities there. Um,
0: and does one that of the apply? Best examples- yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to extrapolate this. So it sounds like it's very similar in like a washing machine, let's say, as, to, to yeah, take oh, that exam- example Absolutely. further that um, there might be washing machines that are Essentially undervalued, like the stocks, um, which mm-hmm. means that there's a potential for that company to extract more value by increasing their price. Without, Pre- precisely, without sec- yes,
1: yes. Without yeah, sacrificing fact, you, you want sales. Be, yeah, you you want to study the what would happen if you increase the price? So we we look at what the thing is worth relative to what your price is, and then if you bring the price up, of course you'll sell fewer. And that, but you you might make more money. So, uh, one of the if, if you if your viewers were to look at my LinkedIn file, you would see that we looked at a helicopter. In fact, my uh, my firm was looking at this helicopter several years ago. We we predicted it that was undervalued, and the the firm that we were trying to work with that was building this helicopter didn't pay any attention to us. They went ahead and built it. And it turned out that the price that we predicted back in 2014, when you take the current prices of used helicopters, you know, just off the line, been used maybe 20, 30 hours. And you just count it back. It's almost exactly the price that we predicted back then. And basically this says that they built a whole lot of helicopters. They should have built fewer. Hmm. And the revenue would actually have been higher based on the demand curve. And they would have had less costs incurred. And they basically left tens of millions of dollars on the table because they undervalued their product. And so that's exactly what you're getting at there is there's a way to figure out if things are correctly priced, underpriced, or overpriced by using this.
0: Mm, mm, That's fascinating, yeah. And this is clearly a very different model to the traditional models and the traditional... I mean, I don't know how... Uh, in, in your example of the helicopter or the washing machine, how people price those things. But I know from from the areas I was involved in and, and even in small business... Well, small business is a disaster in terms of pricing things appropriately to value because people generally... Um, either they do cost plus some sort of percentage mm-hmm. or they... Um, they look at what the competition is pricing at and try to undercut because they're desperate for business, uh, and right. they, they don't take value into account at all. So how um, and and in the big business, it was a lot of it was cost plus some sort of profit margin that somebody randomly decided that's the profit margin that we need, uh, which didn't seem to make sense to me at the time. Uh, now, Me either. <laughs> <laughs> how, um, what I'm curious about is obviously, this is a very different model. How much resistance have you faced in places where you've proposed this model and suggested that people adopt it in, in their own business?
1: Um, well, actually, quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not intuitively obvious what a, a 4D model is. Basically, what one has to do is that people that are familiar with dimensions are pretty familiar with positive and negative numbers. And the trick to a 4D system, such as the trick is, is that it supposes that there's a zero point that's common to everything. So zero, 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 onto however many dimensions you're looking at, zero. And everything goes positive from there. Well, people say, well, how can you use that, Doug? I mean, everything... You can have negative situations but here's the catch here's the little trick that that lets you do something like that which is to say that in business there are no at least from our standpoint there are no absolute negative numbers so it's just to say that you can start out a business and you can have costs and you can have revenues and if you have more revenues than you have cost we say that you're making a profit and people say that you're in the plus and if you have more cost, than you have revenue. You could say that you're in a negative position. Well, you can, you can portray that negative position in a positive space. Just take both things in a positive sector and show the, the cost line being above the, the, the revenue line. And that's the trick, such as it is, is that we show everything in positive, positive, positive space. And so everything emanates out from a center point. So the book likes to point back to the, uh, the South Pole. Now, very interestingly, here, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, but Australia, you know, your, your, your viewers may not, or your listeners may not know this, but Australia shares a, um, a, uh, a common boundary, its territories. With Argentina, and people would say, "Doug, we're a continent. We don't have any. Yeah. Bo- we don't have any boundaries with anybody else. But you have territories, claims yeah. in, in Antarctica. Antarctica, exactly, and so does Argentina, mm. and those claims meet at the South Pole. The, ax- the, the Earth's axis running through the South Pole forms a dividing line." in physical space that is akin to the what we call the price axis in the multidimensional models that we use, the multiverse. And so that, that that line at the South Pole, you can go to the South Pole and you can be right at the very point of the South Pole and you can take a step into Australia you're going away from Argentina. You could say, well, I'm in, I'm in positive Argentina. Australia space, but what you're not doing is you're not going into negative hmm. Argentina space. And you could take a step back with the South Pole and go into Argentina. Say I'm taking a step into positive Argentina space, but I'm not going into negative Australia space. Now that seemingly little wordplay there turns out to be massively important for for one to be able to collapse all the dimensions down to the single point. So in my book, we actually worked out other ways to collapse dimensions down using um, pie charts and parallelograms and concentric circles. And it turns out that you can collapse all the dimensions down, and have each market's pie shape represent its portion of GDP and have its lateral extent represent the outermost boundaries of, of a certain feature. And this lower boundary represent the lowest price in a product range. And this upper boundary represent the highest price. And it turns out you can give yourself a very odd looking kind of vertical Rolodex (laughs) that describes all the world's GDP on one spindle. So in the book, there is a five market, 16 dimensional subset of the world's GDP. It describes 3% of the world's GDP. So it's got a ways to go, but it's the the principle is there. You You can plot anything you want you can plot everything you want into one view and it's expandable so in other words you can take these little slivers out and pop them up into a a 4d model it looks a little bit like this for the listeners i'm showing you're getting a 4d model it's got the uh a demand plane which we typically show in red um, on what we usually call the right side and then a value space which has got two green vertical planes and then it's got a intersecting plane through it that describes how the value goes up in this case as we had stocks as we had the return on assets and the uh, earnings per share but what happens then is you can collapse all these things down by using these pantographs or or basically if you've seen man lifts or, or, or um, uh, mirrors that extend from the wall in your hotel room those extendable mirrors those links are called pantographs. And the pantograph, the interesting thing about a pantograph is it doesn't lose the link length as you manipulate it. And so because it doesn't lose the link length, you can compress these things down and, and keep track of all the information in the entire world in this one worldview that you can just manipulate to your heart's content. So
0: mm. Mm.
1: fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Yeah.
0: It's a. It's obviously a very complicated model. What's um. What's something, and and I haven't had the luxury of reading the book as yet, so I'm looking forward to, to getting a hold of that in January, and it will be Thank out you. by the time we air this episode. Oh, um, excellent! So we'll have links to that in the show notes. But w- what um, I guess what I'm curious about is how, how do. People access this information in a practical way, and and then apply it to determining, let's say, the pricing for for a product, or even before that, um, like in your helicopter example, determine does it even make sense to develop this, given the cost's going to be here, and and hypernomics is saying the pricing should be the value pricing. Well, will that, be that's here. an
1: excellent question too, Jürgen. I appreciate that. It it, it turns out that the markets are already telling you what they will and won't do before you enter them typically. Hmm. So very interestingly, there was a, an outfit in the United States called Ariane aerospace. They wanted to build the world's first supersonic business jet. Recall that the world had a supersonic plane before the Concorde and what <clears throat> the Arion people didn't do is they didn't pay attention to the Concorde example. So Concorde was a supersonic jet that, that was developed by a consortium in the UK and France. And they originally thought they were going to build 350 of these planes. And it turned out that there was a market for 20 and the planes operated profitably after they were built, but the company took a bath on the development of this because you can't recover your costs in just 20 planes. And so this, Arian tried to make a, a, a supersonic business jet and they came up with a development cost and our group had studied development costs and the development costs looked great. So they, they were within, you know, 20% of what it should have been. It seemed reasonable. And then they came up with a value of the, of the plane. And by some metrics, the value was even higher than the price they were posting. So that seemed good. But then they gave uh, a, proposed number of sales that they're going to have over the course of a decade. They proposed that they're going to sell 300 of these guys, the Ariane AS-2, in a decade, 500 over the course of the, the, the lifetime of the plane. Well, if you go out and look at the aircraft that are sold and, and compare their prices, and so you get this, this boundary, which we call the demand frontier. And this dem- this demand frontier, when they started, suggested that at the price that they were posting, Back in 2014, if you have taken the previous 10 years before that, it said the market might have supported 47. And then you, so at, when they launched in 2014, they had 20 orders. And then to their discredit, five years later, they've been working on this the whole time. They still got just the 20 orders. Hmm. And you look at the market, how it's moved, and it's moved from 47, moving in the right direction, but only moved to 63. Now recall that they wanted to have 300 of these guys. Hmm. Well, it turns out there was a chance they could make 300, but according to my calculations, that chance was one in 40. So I wrote a little LinkedIn post that said it was worth every penny, but there weren't enough pennies in the world to, to make the, uh, the make their sales goal. And I got an angry reply from a guy I knew that we, we used to work together that said, uh, Well, you're all wet. We just got this big order in. He didn't tell it, he didn't bother to, to specify that they're all options, which in aerospace means maybe they will buy them. Yeah, but he got this order in, and he said, "Oh, we're going to make it." And they go, "Good for you." You're not. And uh, six months go by, and the, the the whole enterprise went belly up, and that's because they didn't understand there was a demand frontier out there. Hmm. So that's a a, a multi billion dollar enterprise. But if you want to take a practical application that's relatively inexpensive, something that somebody could do for themselves is you you could go down. We have a restaurant that we like to frequent. It's just down the street. And during COVID, the, the restaurant here in California, United States, everybody had to eat outside in the early part of 2020 during COVID at restaurants. That was the only way the restaurants were going to stay alive is they had to be on their patio area. So this, this restaurant had a very big indoor square footage, but it had a very small patio by comparison. And so it was, it was pretty popular. And so on Friday and Saturday nights, the people would be going out the door at this place because there weren't enough seats. Hmm. Well, now if you counted the seats, you'd say, well, you got 30-some seats, but you'd only see that they were partially populated. Well, why was that? Well, it turned out they had a lot of tables of four and six. And my observation had been that most of the parties that come in there were ones of twos. Now, it turns out if you do more research, which I eventually did, You'll discover that there are in the United States, there's 2.25 times as many parties of two entering restaurants as there are parties of four, which means you ought to have more than twice as many tables of two as you do of four. And so I told the manager, whom we knew pretty well, I said, Hey, want to make more money? Well, she says, well, Of course they do. I said, Well, here's what you need to do: take out some of these big tables and put in more little tables. Because if you're you're your average, your your more frequent party size are parties of one and two, rather than four and six. And she did that, and the revenue shot up twenty five percent in two months. And so that's just a, a very simple observation that you can have. that basically works out what the demand curve is for the, for something like that. So yeah. there, there are some very simple applications one can do. And this stuff, this stuff sounds complicated. And I, I mean, I've been, I got to tell you, when I came up with this over 10 years ago, and I first said, what's a 4D system? I didn't know myself. I mean, what do you mean it's 4D? And then I had to actually train my, myself to say that, well, it, you know, it's a mathematical system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There doesn't have to be, you know, up, down, right, left, front, back as we have in a physical system, these are mathematical dimensions. So when we, we, we used to take, you know, back in first, you know, first algebra class we had, we had X and Y. Well, Y typically looks like it's going out to the east, and X typically looks like it's, or X is going off to the east, and Y is going up, up you're going up. But if you take that and you rotate it, there's really no reason that you can't rotate it 90 degrees or rotate mm-hmm. it 45 degrees, and you still got X and Y. And so what that lets you see is that the relationship mathematically is, is just arbitrary across that point. And that turns out to be the key to the whole thing is to see that, oh, I'm, do, I'm in a mathematical system, not a physical system. I'm in a mathematical system that people and entities react to in a mathematical way, not a physical way. And that, that turns out to be crucially important to that. Now I think I may have related to you too that I validated this. I think just a couple months ago I took a I took a run and I got done at the end of the run. Did I tell you about the ant that I saw? Did I tell you about that or not? No, no. Okay, well, famously, Doctor the guy that uh, did. quantum mechanics, Richard Feynman. Dr. Feynman typically would, would study things outside of his realm. So instead of just studying quantum mechanics, he liked to study ants once in a while. So I thought, well, Dr. Feynman can study an ant. I can too. So I got done with the end of a run and I got off the trail and I'm standing over some asphalt and I said, I'm going to study this little ant that I see down here. So I saw a little ant about a, half, about a quarter to a half inch long, little reddish black thing. And I watched him, and he's, he started to make this little counterclockwise motion in fits and starts. It kind of looked like a little bit of a circle. And he, after about 20, 30 seconds, he traced out almost 360 degrees. But he, he was out a little bit further at the end of 360 degrees than he was where he started. And so I watched him go another cycle like this, kind of in a jagged little way, and he goes himself another 360 degrees. He's out further still. And then he does it again he goes out another 360 degrees and he's out further still and i said that little guy is doing reconnaissance Hmm. so i raced home and i typed in ant reconnaissance into my google search bar and sure enough that species of ant that's got the the characteristic counterclockwise motion He's going out there. They do surveillance to figure out how to put up a new nest that's away from other people, which is kind of a principle of hypernomics. You don't want to make something that's exactly similar to somebody else's product, or you don't want to be right on top of them. So the ants want a nest that's away from other ant nests, and they want it to be just right. They want to have access to food. They don't want to be below the water with a potential water line, but they want to be close to the water. And they want the, th- the, the the size of their nest to be cozy enough that they can keep heat into it, but they don't want it wide open so the wind can whistle through it and so basically the ants are weighing out these these features in the same way that people are hmm. and that species has been around for forty million years, and we've been around for less than that, so I submit that we've been doing this since the beginning of humanity
0: <laughs> it's fantastic, yeah, I love the the Use of um, nature and, and particularly as you say, the species that have been essentially doing this behavior for for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah.
1: Yes. Right. Mm. So yeah, it's 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 ubiquitous behavior, and it's just uh, nobody had taken the time to disconnect what they've been told. So I have a degree in economics, and basically, I, I was told things were operated by the law of supply and demand. And I just asked myself the question, well, what if I didn't know that? What if Mm -hmm. I didn't know that? What do I see versus what do I, what have I been told? So what I saw was what what my wife did, which was something different. Mm -hmm. What I saw is what the aunt was doing. And,
0: um, yeah. And it sort of comes back to highlight that, a lot of this value perception thing in in terms of the economics and and even the stock market is based on people's behavior, isn't
1: it? Yes, exactly. Right. Mm. That's what we're, we're, we're basing all this stuff on human behavior. We don't want to presume back when you said people are guessing about the prices, they're saying cost plus a certain percentage. Well, you, you've made an assumption Mm about what that markup ought to be? What's your observation about what that could be? So for example, if you're making a high quality meal here in Santa Clarita, it's gonna fetch a certain amount based on the the quality of the food in the zip code here in the postal code, in the United States. But if you were to make that into a, more, into a more, make that same meal in a wealthier spot, it could probably fetch more money. Hmm. Conversely, if you were to make the same food in a less wealthy spot, it would fetch Less money, so you want to figure out all the parameters that are going into your your products as you're as you're building whatever that is that you're building or making whatever it is that you're making.
0: Hmm. Now, I I kind of remember this. Some of this reminds me of the days I was doing statistical analysis um, in some of the scientific work we were doing, and um, because a lot of that was running models in four dimensions and mm-hmm. it was really hard to get my head around all of that stuff. But we had software to do all of this and we had software that actually plotted the response um, response planes we had or response surfaces that we had where we could mm-hmm. predict this is where we need to be with our, um, and we were using it to uh, uh, fine tune scientific um, parameters, not so it was an engineering problem or a, a science problem, not a, an economics problem, but it sort of reminds right. me of that. Um, now in, in your sense, I know you have software, right? You've, you've developed software to kind of mm-hmm. run these models yes, we, and, and learn from it.
1: Yeah. So the software will, <clears throat> for example, if you're looking at, a at, um, electric cars, so for example, if people buy electric cars based on the, how much horsepower it has and how many seats that it has but it, so and then so this got horsepower seats and then the price so there's three dimensions and then there's the quantity that are sold so the, the higher priced vehicles sell fewer lower priced vehicles sell more so you've got this four-dimensional model but you can modulate the that surface by other responses so if you've got seats and horsepower you could probably modulate it by range so a car that's got 500 miles of range Will likely be worth more than cars that have half as much range. Now, statistically speaking, that 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 feature may or may not come out in the data. But usually, if it's something that enough people agree upon, the 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 the, the results will show these these step functions of of different responses by different levels of other important factors that people like to have in whatever product it is that they're buying.
0: Hmm. All right. And um, yeah, so the software is available through the Hypernomics website, right? Yes. Or working with you. All right. Well, this is fascinating. We'll come back to where people can find out more in a moment. But I'd like now to transition into our buzz round, which is the same five questions okay. I ask of every guest. It's sure. a um, little bit of a shift in what we've been talking about. It's more sort of okay. business related. Um, but the idea is that you'll give some tips from your experience that will inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. Okay, very good. You all set? Sure. So what's what's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative?
1: Uh, Keep an open mind. Uh, Don't assume you know everything you need to know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love your example earlier about observing nature, observing things that are well outside the the space you're working in.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just don't don't suppose that you know everything. That's that's my little mantra to myself. Try to keep yourself open to new experiences. Uh, listening to the wife who basically got me into this <laughs> yeah. whole thing. Yeah, well, is it? There's a, so, another tip.
0: Listen, listen more to <laughs> your wife, for partner. Yeah. Right. All right. What's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Maybe that's the answer.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's yeah. It's the other side of that coin, which is to the best thing I've done to develop new ideas is to shed the ideas is to, is to shed the assumption that I knew what I, what it was that I was talking about. So I just basically assumed that I didn't know anything, which if you ask my wife is a pretty good assumption. <laughs> just, just assume that I don't know anything. Yeah. And, and what do I see rather than versus what do I know? And it, it's, I mean, that, that came from, I'm sure that years of meditation and, and, and reflection like that made it so it's easier to get to a state like that, but being able to actually just vacate my, my previous, uh, I guess you would call it um, knowledge base hmm. and start afresh is what led me to being able to see what I've been able to see. So. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So ask kind of like asking a question, what if I didn't know this?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Mm. Precisely. Thank Mm. you. Excellent. All right. Now, do you have a favorite resource you use most often?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm on Google quite a bit. Google, (laughs) Google, I think, would be a a good source for anything. And then Wikipedia, too. Wikipedia has been vetted. So I use Wikipedia and then I go to the the, the sources they cite to cross-check my my resources. So in my book, I went to Wikipedia several times and then would go to the sub sub-references and then go back to those. So Wikipedia is, people originally poo-pooed Wikipedia, Mm. you know, 10 years ago, but I I think it's become uh, just a modern day encyclopedia.
0: Yeah. um, Yeah. They've done a lot, I think too, because I was looking at how do you set up your own Wikipedia page and it's not that easy because you have to jump through a lot of hoops. So I think they've, they've really tightened their act Mm -hmm. up in terms of uh, quality of information and um, yeah, uh, references and it, so on. It's
1: really, really good. And then I, I use the Wayback Machine when I when I can't find something that's current. So,
0: yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a couple
1: of brilliant tips there. All
0: right, now what's the best way to keep a project on track?
1: Uh well, I guess not. Don't let it get off track in the first place. <laughs> now I've had I've had several projects run afoul, you know, at the beginning, and, and I think that in retrospect. I would have tried to rope in what went awry early on and um, try to redirect the traffic back to some um, some actions that would have prevented it from going south. So, for example, we spent our company spent a lot of time trying to convince the helicopter industry that they ought to listen to us, and uh, turned out as we, we we saw from recent data, we were right. But by the time we figured out we were right and we'd spent, you know, a couple thousand hours of labor, more than that probably, we'd lost a bunch of money on that. So um, I, my, my own advice to myself would be don't, don't go down the rabbit hole so deeply that you lose money just simply to answer the final question of, you no. know, what's the right answer here? So we basically took that helicopter database and, you know, put it through the ringer so many different ways, and came up with so many different options but the 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 problem was that people didn't know that they needed these answers and back to the original problem, how do you convince somebody to 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 use you well that I'm hopeful the book will take care of that because the book will become a primer for people to say, "Well, why would I ever partake of this kind of knowledge and um, hmm. the book explains why it works and and what what people do and so we hope that in the future people read the book and they go, oh, okay. Well, so this, if I, if I take that approach and I, I apply it myself to whatever this is over here, I'm bound to get better results than I would if I didn't use the approach. That's what we wanted people to get to going forward.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, that's fantastic. So a final question of the buzz round. What's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves?
1: Oh, I, I, think the, uh, the old Steve jobs thinks st- think different, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't use the, don't use the, uh, adverb when you could, right. You just think different. I, I, you know, just think about what it is that you can do that people haven't done and try to fit into a space that's unoccupied, but that needs, needs to be, be filled. So, um, I mean, the first person that came up with the idea of a cell phone, a a cell phone seemed very innovative at the time. But, you know, people had built, you know, if if people had built warning towers in Europe for, you know, if you go to a castle on the on the Rhine, you'll Hmm. you stop at a castle and you you're there and you sit, you you see that the type of construction and then you see one off on a ridge over there and you see one off on a ridge over there. And you ask your tour guide, what are those? And they'll tell you, well, those were warning towers for this yeah. castle. Oh, because they're all built of the same mm-hmm. type. So what that tells you is people had spent a great deal of money just trying to get you know, communications going. Mm-hmm. And so then you fast-forward that up to the Great Wall where people would shout up and down the wall about what, what was coming in the Great Wall of China. And then you go to the walkie-talkies of World War II two that you know, the, evolved into the first car phones. Well, there's a gradual progression of things that are happening there. And, and what you want to be able to do is to keep your eyes open for trends that are moving in a direction that needs something that hasn't been invented yet. So um, I, I would say, try to keep your eyes open to see what the world needs. Our little mantra is find out what the, the customers want, don't have, and can afford. So try to get the, the product that satisfies that mantra what do they want what don't they have and what can they afford and hmm. through hypernomics you that. can actually yep. model what they want don't have and can afford and that's that's yeah. what we would suggest people would do
0: yeah that's fantastic i love that um and it's sort of a lot of people come up with a an idea and they're oh this is a great idea and they fall in love with their own idea uh, but it doesn't actually meet any of those three criteria right it's sort of Great idea! Yeah, but...
1: yeah. that's an excellent point. You're gonna. Uh, I especially saw that in aerospace. So, for example, getting back to the the on AS two. I mean, engineers are especially aeronautical engineers are very famously attracted to bright, shiny objects. <laughs> and bright, shiny objects that go really fast are really cool to engineers. And so the the mistake people make is it's really cool. I love it. Therefore, because it's really cool and I love it, everybody will love hmm. it. Well, everybody may love it, but not everybody can afford it, and that's yeah. kind of what you have to be able to prove to yourself: is Are you going to make something that people want, don't have, and can afford? Now, that last piece is critically important. Mm. What can you know? What can they afford? Now, the other problem that you could have on that back end is you could underprice something too, mm. and uh, in which case you could fall flat. So, famously in aerospace again, the seventh employee from. Microsoft, a guy named Vern Rayburn, went off to Albuquerque, New Mexico back in the early 2000s and decided he was going to build business jets, small little cheap business jets, and he was going to crank them out like he cranked out computers because he used to build computers. And so he built this business jet, seated five, and was going to go 400 and some miles an hour and had a nice range. And our model suggested the thing was worth over $2 million dollars. And he started to sell it at under under eight hundred thousand dollars. Well, what would happen if you if you if you offered your house for sale at forty percent of the price? Well, you get a whole bunch of offers? Well, he gets all these orders, and he couldn't fill the orders, and he ended up going bankrupt. So it's Hmm. you know this. The idea is that you know don't don't put your feelings and your gut ahead of the uh, ahead of the group math. I mean, because people the mass of people that make up the market they have a they have an opinion and you need to understand that opinion so what we like to say is in our company is the, the last thing we want to inject into what we offer the client is an opinion you know we want to come in with <laughs> these are the facts yeah. you can have, you have your own opinion about what these facts are but we you know our, our dollars into the, you know into the aircraft market are nothing you know we buy a few pl- pl- plane rides on a commercial jet my money in the in the commercial aviation market means nothing. But the mass of data that's out there means oh, everything. You got to go out and understand how this mass of, of data is reacting, whatever your field of endeavor is. And that that's what we would encourage people to do, hmm. is to do that.
0: Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks for getting us through the buzz round. Now, um, where okay. can people find out more about you, about hyponomics, the work you're doing, get a hold of okay. the book? and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today, Doug.
1: Oh, great. Uh, well, you can you can reach me directly if you'd like to email me at uh, dhowarth, that's D-H-O-W-A-R-T-H, at hypernomics.com. So that's H-Y-P-E-R-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. Uh, our website is www.hypernomics.com. I also have a personal website, DougHowarth.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and my book entitled Hypernomics colon, using hidden dimensions to solve unseen problems is available right now on pre-order through Wiley. It's available on Amazon, Wiley and Barnes Noble among other sites right now. So
0: Excellent. All right. Well, that we'll you short we'll time. include all those links in the show notes so people can okay. click straight through. They don't have to remember them. Um, right. What what action would you like our listener to take out of our conversation today, Doug? It's been sort of a wide of well, conversation. I'd like them to
1: take the action that uh, you know, whatever it is that you want to do in your your business career, just make sure that you're, you're, you're touching all the bases that you need to touch. Now, I, I'm, of course, I'm touting our company, and, and maybe you'll find something else that works for you, but the, the point we've discovered is, is that the, 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 the mass of people that are buying products have an opinion, and there's a way to measure that, and you, you have to find some way to answer their call with your, with your products so that you make the best product for you. So try to figure out what your clients want don't have and can afford and then try to make that product for them.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Well, there's, there's those three criteria again. So Right. Thanks for that, Doug. And thanks so much for Thank sharing you. your time and your insights so generously. I've really enjoyed Thank our you, conversation Eric. today. It's been uh, a fascinating kind of expose of kind of the shortcomings, I suppose, of the supply demand, uh, theory of economics and uh, exploration of what happens when you consider a whole lot of other dimensions and and that right that three critical questions there of what right. what do people want what can they afford and what don't they have right exactly yeah. so I love it thanks so much and let's stay in touch thank you
1: all right yeah let's do
0: that thank you thanks for listening we'd love you to leave a review on this episode it will help us to make the podcast better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash Innovabuzz and pick your preferred platform. Remember to visit Innovabiz.co forward slash Flywheel and secure your membership to the exclusive Flywheel Nation community, where you will enjoy direct access to our incredible podcast guests, engaging, meaningful conversations and participate in connection events designed to elevate your business journey. Don't miss out. Join Flywell Nation today. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBuzz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.